0: I just opened the door, and then that's when I saw these five guys holding the girls. I saw the big axe. I knew they didn't come for us. I knew it was for the rhino. The Kruger National Park is home to the largest population of rhinos on the planet, and they are being poached here. An epidemic of slaughter.
1: And at this rate, the rhino is doomed. And on the ground, the situation resembles
0: the war. It's the only one suspect
1: that's been arrested.
0: Yeah, only one suspect, the Chinese national. No, the whole supply chain might start in Kruger. But where the hell does it end up? The center of the illegal trade in horns is Vietnam. There's no turning around now. The rhino it will go like blood. No blood, you see? $94, dollars dollar for one gram. $94? It's random. I'm going to turn my eyes off. I'm going to turn my eyes
1: off.
0: The court will note that the case number two is not present. He was shot and killed in Kruger after he was released on bail. Is it written today that I die? I don't fear being shot. I fear making a mistake and planning up in jail. i got to do something, I'm going to stand up for the rhinos. Back home for my people, this piece of rhino horn is a symbol of death. What do you say to that? We come across this beautiful, beautiful animal lying dead there. And the only thing that is gone is a horn and you just think to yourself, what a waste. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. My guest for this podcast is Nathan Edmondson. Nathan, how's it going, brother?
1: Good, man. How are you?
0: I'm good. So, Nathan, you do a couple of things, you know, and and we'll talk about some of that. But for this podcast, we're going to focus on Echo Defense Group. Um or EDGE. Uh, Can we talk about what Echo Defense Defense Group is and what your background is?
1: Sure. Um, Yeah, so EDGE is a... We're a 501c3. We're a nonprofit and NGO. And uh, we were founded uh, literally on the front lines of the Rhino War um, in Africa. So we are a wildlife protection conservation organization. Um, We bring expertise to traditional counter poaching units and um when our goal is to essentially make make them better to create asymmetric capabilities and we work with u.s special operations veterans exclusively from a special missions unit um in in the army and uh we've been around for for about three years i'm the president of that group which makes me uh both my, my roles are primarily uh, project development fundraising and uh you know i guess a, a You'd consider me a broker of talent. That is, I, I spend a lot of time around the campfire in the bush, walking around with guys in in Africa, and then consulting with our uh, our operations team to um, you know find ways that we can implement uh, you know different development projects to to um, help support and develop counter poaching units. Uh, in various parks and ranges, uh, concurrent with all of our security work. We do community development and implementation specifically, um, for example, textile centers for women and young girls to make, um, you know, to make, uh, uh, necessary items for, for Rangers. That's one of the things we're implementing this year.
0: So, um, yeah. Awesome. Okay. So the, basically the work that you guys are doing is, uh um hugely important uh, for various reasons uh, poaching is a serious crime while it does occur in other areas of the world, it seems to be a major issue in Africa. What drives the crime
1: um, you know it, it, like anything else it's it's complicated uh, however, in the case of the majority areas we operate it's it's you know, based on one thing, and that is the rhino horn. Um, rhino horn is the most valuable material on the planet right now. Uh, more valuable than diamonds, heroin, you know, you name it, uh, ounce for ounce. And so, um, you know, where there is, uh, uh, something of that much value and, and which is driven by demand in Southeast Asia, um, because of its completely, you know, uh, can I curse on this podcast? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, don't know if you have a marker about kid friendliness on it, but uh, because it's, you know, frankly, completely uh, uh, bullshit uses. But, um, you know, what happens is a syndicate is then formed uh, as a middleman brokering the the need uh, or the, the demand to the supply and they recruit um, from usually, uh, from villages close to areas with endangered wildlife populations. Uh, they'll recruit poachers with local knowledge of the bush and send them in. And, uh, you know, for the syndicates, it's a numbers game for the, the poachers who are recruited. It is a matter of getting six months salary for two nights work, uh, maybe risking your life, but you know, it's, it's, it's worth it. Um, in some areas now that, you know, there, there are, Former military or people with like what you call professional poachers being recruited, uh, they pose a different kind of threat. There's also pressure from terror organizations. Uh, traditionally, Boko Haram has uh, profited from the ivory trade. There's a lot of stories about that, um, and other things are happening uh, with different terror organizations and the rhino horn trade. the The, the intel is is you know it's developing. Um, it's it's based a lot on anecdote and kind of geography right now. Uh, exactly what those supply lines look like. So, um, you know, that that drives them. At the end of the day, you've got something of high value next to impoverished populations, which is why it's important to both work in communities and to protect the animal. And, of course, rhino is the umbrella species. They target the rhino horn, but uh, lion paws and lion heads, ivory, um, pangolin scales, which, you know, uh, pangolin um, may have (laughs) been may have caused the coronavirus global pandemic. So if you think one poaching team, counter poaching team, might have stopped the poaching of the one pangolin that ended up in the market that that led to this global crisis. Uh, so there are other ramifications to all of this. But um, yeah, hopefully, as I said, it's very complicated and you can go on for hours, but hopefully that gives you a basic summary of,
0: of sort of this situation. It does. And from what I understand, a lot of the individuals who are doing the poaching are doing it for purely economic reasons. Um, similar to a lot of some of the terrorist groups that operate uh, in Southeast Asia, the Middle East, um, and Africa. Uh, a lot of times it isn't necessarily that they believe in such an ide- ideological, uh, you know, theory or concept, but it's more that it pays more than anything that's available. Um, so that that is interesting,
1: yeah yeah and I would I would add to that that you know we t- we that is we in the West or we in you know highly developed countries kind of take it for granted that endangered wildlife have value right they're endangered they're special they must be protected but if you know if you grow up with no experience of going on safari no sense of you know the importance that animal has in terms of evolutionary history and global wildlife populations. Uh, to you, that animal is worth more dead than it is alive, um, and so it's it's very important to try to figure out how to turn that switch. Um, you know, on the front lines of of poaching. You know, how do you create a circumstance in which uh, that animal is worth more? alive than dead. And, um, you know, I, I, think you even see people on safari sometimes who just don't seem to get it, you know, uh, and, and there's all kinds of ways to express that thing. For example, if you're a farmer who lives around elephants, um, an elephant is not only worth more dead than alive. It's, uh, it threatens your life and your livelihood. It can come in destroy your crops. It can step on you. It can charge you. Like why in the world would you want to live, you know, in harmony with an elephant, because it doesn't seem to have any interest in living in harmony with you, based on, you know, your experience. So if you can, and and that's not, that's to say nothing for, you know, uh, lions and leopards and things. I mean, most of Africa now, wildlife like that, you you have to look, it's not, like it used to be hundreds of years ago, right? Where, where, uh, everywhere you have lions roaming and you just have to find a way to live around it. Now you have reserves and parks and fences. Um, and that's because, you know, as civilization, you got to a point where you're tired of your, you know, your people in your community being killed by lions or elephants. So, um, the point is it's, it's something we do take for granted in that regard too. And, uh, you know, yeah.
0: So how has COVID-19 affected conservation and anti-poaching work?
1: Yeah, well, um, I, I can give you a couple of examples which may seem to contradict each other. Um, I think the statistics for the first six months of um, of the year are that um, in South Africa, anyway, rhino poaching was uh, basically the, the cut in half compared to the same statistics in 2019 I think in 2019 there were uh, 300 and uh, I don't know, 330 or something like that rhinos killed in the first six months of 2019 uh, this year uh, it was 166 um, so and, and the reason for that is just an extraordinary shutdown I mean South Africa has seen one of the strictest if not the strictest shutdown in the world for COVID-19. Um, and that means that any car you see on the road that, you know, it is going to be pulled over is going to be stopped and is breaking the law. So it's hard for poachers, for example, to mix into, uh, you know, mix into traffic, uh, to, to get weapons into parks with, uh, tourists, you know, because everything is just shut down. Now that said, um, of course, uh, South Africa has essentially gone bankrupt. Um, And people are out of work, as we have seen over here, that leads to unrest and all kinds of problems. Um, And that's becoming very quickly and in a very nasty way true uh, in South Africa and other African countries. So what that means is that this is going to come back with a vengeance. Um, People, as they start opening up the doors, as they started doing on Wednesday for tourists to move between provinces to go into parks, um, you're going to see and and we are starting to see indications uh, and and starting to see incidents of of poaching where it looks like this is going to come back pretty hard. Uh, Those same people that would be recruited to be poachers um, are going to be desperate, combined with the fact that uh, rhino horn has been touted as a cure and a protection against coronavirus <laughs> in right. China and Taiwan. So, um, yeah, so I think that there's, there's a sort of calm before the storm, uh, thing happening right now. The other thing is in one park that we are talking about going and developing counter program capabilities for, they told us this week that they have, um, the park has now seen an 80% cut in conservation funding. Wow. And that's because all their funding is based on tourism. So if you're, you know, you can imagine a number of scenarios. One is simply that if you're a ranger who, for example, needs new boots, well, that's not in the budget this year, which means that, you know, your torn-up boot that you know, you're you're no longer as able to run after a poacher, you know, it, it comes down to something that concrete. Um, alternatively you can you can just look and see that the robustness of Um, the ability to manage the wildlife in a park is going to be incredibly diminished and we're going to see that in unexpected and, you know, uh, predictable ways.
0: So we sort of or you sort of profiled what some of the the folks who are on the ground and are doing the poaching, Uh, you know, some of the reasons why they do what they do. What about the folks who are doing the anti-poaching work, like the the locals and natives to those areas, uh, can we talk about, you know, what their motivations are and and why they do what they do?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, You know, and and, uh, like everybody's story is different, right? And I think that on the whole, a lot of people, you know, in some places, uh, getting a job as a ranger is, I mean, there may be, Very few jobs available, and that's a a thing of great prestige. You know, um, in other places, uh, you may have signed up for a convenient job, spending time in a park, uh, and did not expect, though, that you were signing up to to fight a war. Um, You know, you you thought you'd be chasing people, you know, dumb campers who, uh, you know, true stories, who, who go and set up a picnic basket in the middle of lion country. You know, (laughs) you thought you signed up to to go and, you know, shout at those kind of people, but now you find yourself facing AK 47s, pipe bombs, traps, and other things. Um, So, you know, I I can say that while there are anybody is corruptible, right? And if you, you know, and this is a true story uh, of of a ranger who, um, you know, and I won't say where or anything like that, but just to highlight an example, a, a guy who's very dedicated, very devoted, and there was an illness. one of his parents got very sick um, and didn't make money from his job and you know uh using their own intelligence, the poaching syndicate knew that he had a vulnerability and approached him and you know it may start as a small as a small thing like hey look, you don't have to participate in this this if you could just tell us where a rhino is if you could just get this gun in there if you could just give us a little information on when this person goes home you know just something small. And you say, well, I could pay a hospital visit, you know, with that money. Um, and so in, in the case I'm thinking of, that's exactly what happened. You know, this person, uh, extremely well-intentioned, respectable, and, and you know, but but um, at the end of the day, uh, we're put in this, this compromised position um, that I think almost anybody could be sympathetic to. So, um, you know, they're, they're the point is that signing up to be a ranger, while it may have some prestige and it may... Maybe something you know really special about it. Uh, it. It's it's just not that simple, right? And it, and it um, we brought. So one of the things we did two years ago uh, was for the first time in history we had African rangers come and train on U.S. soil. So we brought them over here to do combined training with a um, uh, with a unit over here, and afterwards we. We we went to LA for a fundraiser with these <clears throat> this group of rangers, and we actually had the opportunity to see the premiere of a film, which a couple of them were in a documentary film, um, or, or you know had were featured in, uh, called Sturup, which is a, a documentary about the Rhino War. And I, I can tell you, sitting this like I, I, I this kind of changed my thinking in an interesting way. There's a, there's a moment in the film where I remember um, it's a Rhino has this this cow has her Face has been cut off because that's how they cut the horn off. But she's still alive. And what they do is they they sedate her and they have to drill into the bone of her face to put on a prosthetic face of elephant skin um, to try to you know save her life. And you can see there her, her nasal cavities are exposed. Um, she's she's gasping for for breath. And you know the the vet there says you can see that she wants to live. And we're we're going to help her. And even the vet who is using just a hardware drill to drill. You know, drills like uh, uh, screws, you know, like hardware screws into her face. He's in tears in the video. Um, And I was in tears watching this and I turned and looked at one of the rangers next to me. And so was he. And I made a point of saying that to the leader of this ranger group later. I said, you know, it surprised me because this is this guy's a pretty stone cold operator you know, in my experience with him. And I, and he said, you know, one of the great things about this exchange program has been, they have had the opportunity to see how important their job is to the world. And it hadn't occurred to me to that moment that they wouldn't know that, you know, because to me, that ranger who shows up to protect that rhino, he's doing it for me. He's doing it for my kids. Cause I want them to have the same experience over there, seeing the wildlife that I did. And if these rangers don't risk their life, that day, then the oppor- the chance that my kids or their kids are going to see what I saw, it diminishes every time that, you know, a ranger doesn't step up. So, um, you know, so that is to say that I think that we might attach a level of glory to that job. But I've seen the way a lot of these guys live. I've seen, you know, the resources they've had. I know what they get paid. Uh, you know, it, it, the compensation is and and the lifestyle is extremely limited um, relative to the importance that, you know, perhaps the global community would put on them. So that said, some of the best friends I have are rangers, are, you know, guys over there, are pilots, um, just some of the best people. They have absolutely the best stories. Uh, you know, they start the best fires in the bush to sit beside and, and cook on. Um, so I have a lot of affection just for them and that lifestyle. And uh, uh, there's guys that I would. You know, if they called me in the middle of the night, I would do everything possibly could to answer, you know, whatever they called about, um, which is, you know, kind of what Edge is about. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, look, that's a long way just because in my mind, there's so many personalities, so much positivity, uh, so many dedicated guys I can think of. And they're fighting a war unlike any other in an environment unlike any other. I mean, you know, even the guys I've we travel with who spent time um you know fighting terrorists in the middle east for example or other places uh, i've had them turn to me and say i've never been in a place so dangerous you know uh between black mamas and lions and you know malaria carrying mosquitoes i mean we we get pretty rough and uh you know we can be exposed to um you know to some things that are that are pretty scary i mean i i would not hesitate to bring one of my kids over or a donor and and have you know, pretty awesome experience. But at the end of the day, you're living in an environment and working in an environment where you are a guest and nature reigns and you are not at the top of the food chain, you know, and, uh, an elephant as majestic as they are the day that you cross them or spook them, you mean nothing, you know, for them to run over and crush you is they don't give it a second thought, you know, they don't consider. So, uh, you're living in, in that kind of environment. And, uh, That's that's what these guys live and breathe. And, um, you know, there are some awesome, funny, exciting stories. There are also some incredibly tragic stories, Um, if you will. One one story I'll I'll throw out there just to highlight how unique this environment is. And this happened when we were there. Um, There were two rangers in a certain park. Uh, I don't know if this is a, a, you know, been put in the news. I won't say specifically where they were on patrol. And, uh, one of the most dangerous animals in Africa is, a, a buffalo, specifically what they call it, dugger boy, which is an older male Buffalo that they get very moody. They're, they're pushed out of the herd. They are extremely aggressive. And, um, and, and, and it, and it's a multi-ton truck coming at you, uh, with three times the pulling power of an ox. You know, this is, this is, you know, a pretty, pretty nasty machine when it comes at you. And there were two Rangers who were charged by one and one lifted his rifle to shoot it. um, the round ricocheted off the horn and killed the other ranger. Wow, uh, you know that's uh, you know <laughs> that's crazy. That that's a workplace hazard that I, I never thought I, you know, just it never have crossed my mind ten years ago that there were guys living in you know dealing with things like that. It's just a incredibly unique place, and there's there's a wonderful side to that. But again, these guys put themselves up against something that's hard for us to understand.
0: That is a good point that you made about the differences, let's say, of guys operating in the Middle East, going up against terror networks and groups, and then operating in an environment like out in the bush in Africa, where you have to fight you know, using your weapon, but then there's also all the wildlife around. I had a, a buddy of mine, uh, he spent the last couple of years of his army career uh, in in and out of Africa. <clears throat> Uh, He was a Green Beret, um, like a sniper team leader for a special subset of Green Berets. And they were doing all kind of work all over Africa uh, for a couple of years. And we had done a podcast talking about Africa specifically. And he mentioned that uh, they spent some time on the ground in Libya shortly after the Benghazi incident. And he mentioned that going in there... You know, they want to have as much situational awareness as possible. So they want to learn about, you know, who's who, where are they located? um, What is the soil like and what kind of vehicles can they get on the ground? Just things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. But one thing he mentioned was how many things in the environment out there can kill you, like snakes and mosquitoes. And it was just it was crazy. They had to spend a whole bunch of time focused just on learning about what can kill them in the environment they're operating in.
1: Yeah. No, it, it compels, or impels uh, a high degree of humility. And I think, you know, on a personal level, that's one of the things that has initially attracted me to to this world because I, I did not expect to be devoting my life to this, which I am now, uh, wholly and completely. Uh, and I think one of the things looking back was I felt that I've never – I, I just never felt so much, I don't know, uh, humility to nature as, as I had there understanding one, how, how little I knew, you know, how much there was to learn, um, about this environment and always is, uh, you know, and, and, but also just, like I said, it's, it's nature reigns there. And, uh, um, you know, and, and, and there's, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a drug in Africa that many people talk about the, the, the wildness. Well, you know, it also, uh, you know, means that there is poverty and disease and all of these things that the modern world, um, you know, has, has remedies for, uh, you know, it, 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 it yeah, there's, there's something incredibly entrancing about it. And, um, I think that is more than anything. It is, it is nature. Uh, yeah, it, it is nature and wildlife and, um,
0: Yeah. So the job of countering poachers is obviously inherently dangerous. Um, What happens when a team of rangers encounters a team of poachers?
1: Well, you know, (laughs) after they've worked with us, hopefully something a little bit different than, you know, what they might've done before. um, You know, there's, there's all kinds of ways in which, um, you know, in, in which that will go down. And it depends a great deal on where you are, the resources that the poachers may have. Um, but I think in a number of places, and and I would venture to say that on the whole, uh, the attitude of pursuing a poacher has started to turn, which is to say it used to be that you would track a poacher group. Um, and the whole goal is just to put the pressure pressure on so you could apprehend them. Um, but now since the, the, uh, you know, the, the, the rhino war has kind of, um, evolved to another level. You have to be prepared for them to turn around and fight. So that is one of the key differences that I think you hear mentioned the most in terms of what's changed in in the, the last 10 years, you know, is it used to be about pursuit. Now it's about, you know, preparing for the fight. Um, poachers are prepared to fight. Uh, and so, you know, we we just a uh, uh, couple months ago were working with a group over there who that was 100 percent the case. These guys had uh, were now working there. There was a, a rise in, in poaching incidents in their area. There's a lot of endangered wildlife uh, in this this area that we were working in. And um we did an assessment working with them. And one of the things that our assessment, you know, yielded was. A determination that these guys, uh, as determined as they are, are not prepared for the armed conflict, you know, that we can see a gap in their preparedness, um, even though they are armed, even though all of this, and, and that may seem like a simple thing, but we were able to really boil it down to a couple of key pieces. So we introduced for the first time in, um, in, in history in, in this, uh, you know, in, in this fight, uh, airsoft, uh, through EVIC, actually, uh, EVIC.com and salient arms, they gave us some, uh, some some airsoft technology to bring over there. And we would run drills, uh, pursuit of armed suspect drills with this counter-poaching group. And um, then, actually I was playing the rabbit in this one. Uh, I would, you know, the instructions from our lead trainer were like, okay, now I want you to stop at, you know, point B and point C and shoot at them. And their behavior changed immediately upon realizing that they might actually take fire from somebody. And they didn't think that they needed this training, uh, you know, but afterwards resoundingly, you know, described to us how effective it had been. Um, and that's, you know, one of the values of bringing in somebody who has been involved in that kind of manhunting before. And it's anticipating where their fight's going to go. They're not, they were not at the time facing a lot of armed people. Uh, the guys were still in the flight mode, but even since we've left, there are more and more stories about that flight mode turning to a fight mode. Um, to give you another example, and this is part of our formation, there was a park where um, they said, we have a 50-yard problem, um, and and basically, the poachers, when they stop, uh, turn, and decide to fight, they now have the advantage because they can be highly concealed in thick bush, and Anybody, including the the tracking dogs that come after them, um, are now vulnerable and don't really have a good way. So one of the things – and I I can't describe too specifically some of the tactics that were introduced by uh, Edge's founders um, were – military patrol canine units, so actually um, using patrol dogs instead of just tracking dogs that is dogs with arrest and hold capabilities um, we, we have the top experts in the world uh, at implementing and, and um, uh, uh, training those dogs so that's that's you know part of edges formation um, and also was certain formations for manhunting that uh, uh, our experts have used in, in you know real world Scenarios, so um, you know that, of course, is effective uh, combined with, you know, cross training with other support units who may be working on the ground. I mean, the whole machine has to work to support um, that spear tip as as it's pushed forward. Uh, but that gives you an example. They had a lot of the tools to do what they were doing traditionally. But all of a sudden, that had changed. And, of course, what we know is now that we've introduced these capabilities, the poacher's behavior will change. Uh, for example, uh, they introduced pipe bombs as traps for the dogs. Um, you know, So, okay, now – you know, let's let's talk about that. Do the dogs need to be prepared uh, to alert on this You know, scent of something new? Do we need to introduce that to the training? Um, you know, is this a one off? Is this something you know, do we have intelligence from other areas? Are they starting to see this happen more and more? And, and often what happens um, and there's a good example that's detailed in that really fantastic book called um, The Elephant Whisperer. Uh, he, he describes the inner workings of, of this sort of thing, but the, these syndicates will deploy poachers to a number of parks or reserves in a region. And uh, once they see some sort of deterrent, you know, some some sort of deterrence happening in one area, uh, you'll see an increase in activity in another. And, you know, they they will rotate through those areas looking for soft points and um, soft points in in you know, defense. So, uh, you know, they evolved, they're smart, they have a bird's eye view of what's going on. They're using social media and electronics. Uh, to give you another example that was kind of wild, um, we were up in another country further north. Uh, I'm not sure I can say where with this. You'll you'll understand we're, we're pretty, and this, this sometimes makes fundraising a little more difficult, but we're pretty careful and protective of describing, you know, TTPs, talking about actual locations and geography and stuff like that for a number of reasons. One is, you know, we are guests in every country and we have very special permission as an organization, both through the official U.S. channels, the embassy and all this, and also local channels, uh, local governments. And we really want to stay on the good side of that and never say anything stupid that could compromise any of the work we're doing. Um, But to give you an example, there's a place we're working that had a high rhino population and they all the nearby communities were incredibly um, uh, you know, basically uh, uh, rudimentary um, resources. Uh, you know, if you were to introduce a, a an Xbox in this area, nobody's ever seen anything like that, right? One of the things that nobody in the in the community is that this this particular reserve has an awesome uh, program in working with communities to employ them to do hospitals and schools. They built the school. Uh, uh, you know, just as a reserve, um, based on their, their tourism money, just to benefit the surrounding community, to be collaborative. And as a result, when the community sees something, you know, a bad actor coming in, cutting a fence, going into poach, uh, they alert, they have phones and radios and they will alert the security at this reserve. And that is an awesome community collaboration. Um, you know, that I think the model there at this particular place, we were so impressed by uh, when we went and, and met with them. Uh, and, and also the fact that it's it's not state funded. It's all funded by, you know, tourism dollars. But uh, they told us that a a high flying fixed wing drone, which stayed in the air for the better part of a day, um, was over the park uh, or over the reserve where following Rhino, uh Following the the rhinos as they moved around and forage during the day, you know rhinos will they'll kind of move. They have they have a pattern um, generally, and people in the communities had never seen a drone before. They had no idea what it was. Uh, this is, I mean, that to me is highly alarming because it means that a sophisticated and well um, financed with access to technology, willing to cross borders and break laws. Uh, to deploy that technology was doing surveillance on an area that had never seen syndicate-backed crime before, wildlife crime. So, you know, when we heard that, we said, this is exactly what Edge is here for. Uh, let us get you ready for what we now know is coming. And let's see if we can develop any intel to see if we can understand, you know, who that might've been, uh, which can just be a matter of calling other parks and talking to other parks and, you know, all this. But I mean, that that's a, that's, You know, that's a pretty radical thing. And these are people who are not at all prepared for the kind of sophisticated and, um, you know, uh, uh, determined crime that a um, poaching syndicate might bring. And another example uh, there's a terror, there's a likelihood of pressure from a terror group crossing a border to affect uh, newly introduced rhino populations. Um, And there was a Chinese national arrested. With uh, grenades and a couple of AKs um, and this was the first time anybody had heard about any uh, you know Asian presence in the area uh, with an interest in, and he was there uh, looking for rhino horn. so you know you look for those early indicators because what a number of people are realizing is that South Africa for example or certain parts in South Africa were completely taken off guard by this conflict. Um, nobody expected it to escalate in the way that it did with the speed. Uh, At which it did. And uh, they never expected themselves to be facing off against the kind of weapons and, um, you know, uh, uh, guerrilla warfare tactics that they now face. So some of the other parks that have rhino or have endangered wildlife populations are saying we need to get ready. You know, and that's kind of, you know, in in the DNA of why Edge was formed to say we're here to bring asymmetric capabilities and let's we, we operate very much like a consultancy. You know what can we help with? How can we sharpen the tip of your spear uh, to, to better ready you for what is undoubtedly um, coming?
0: Yeah, I think with the improvement in technology, with you know affordable consumer level drones, uh, things like that, we're seeing all around the world criminal syndicates and groups are utilizing technology to help them, uh, you know, further in, in whatever it is they're trying to do. And <clears throat> there are several examples of that, as you just alluded to in Africa with the the poaching and counter-poaching wars. But, um, you know, you, you see things like that along the U.S. border with the drug cartels. Yeah, no, ab-
1: absolutely. Uh, and And, you know, in, in the poaching conflict, they're learning. From these groups, and they're learning fast. Uh, you know the the what is readily available, commercially available, and, and this is one of the reasons that a lot of you know parks and even African countries have very strict drone laws. Uh, for example, um, we've had very you know special permission granted for us to bring drones for surveillance or you know uh, tracking. And, and the ironic thing is, they're far more useful to a poacher than they are a counter poaching unit. Um, partly for for reasons of budget. Uh, but, but also re- for reasons of, of, you know, more practical reasons, uh, or, or equally as practical reasons, like, um, the, uh, you know, the amount of grant ground that you have to cover to, to, to look, uh, the likelihood that that drone may crash, you know, et cetera. So, uh, you know, it, it's not, uh, you're not on equal ground in terms of the benef- benefits of technology. Um, you know, uh, yeah.
0: So you mentioned that, um, specifically in South Africa or parts of South Africa, there was an increase in the uh, poaching of rhinos. Is that something in a place specific to South Africa where the government would deploy, you know, special operations or troops against them? Or is that just something that park rangers deal with?
1: Um, well, I, I mean, South Africa has the... the uh, you know, the world's highest population of rhino, as well as some of the most, you know, um, the, the most sort of, uh, or, or some of the best and most sought after, you know, test tourist destinations for wildlife safari, you know, so these two things create a, um, you know, basically create a marketplace, you know, for, for, uh, you know, for poaching. So, um, South Africa, certainly like we're we're operating in multiple countries and while South Africa has been at the forefront of a lot of this, um, partly due to its geography, multiple points, ports of entry, uh, you know, uh, both both by sea and by air um, and and by land, uh, you know, that that has contributed as well as their biodiversity, their climate, their size. You know, all of these things are, um, uh, you know, are part of the reason why South Africa was hit first and hardest. Um, and yeah, in a lot of commercial movement that it could fold into, I mean, another part of that story too. honestly, part of what gave a very sharp rise to the, um, rhino, uh, uh to the, the rhino horn crisis that we're seeing now was the professional hunter community. Um, basically what happened was Vietnamese and other Southeast Asian, uh, 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 brokers, they, they weren't necessarily criminal syndicates in the way that we see them now, um, would hire people to go on hunts when it was still legal to, um, it was legal, but controlled to export, uh, horn. And, um, they would essentially corrupt the, the professional hunting industry. They'd buy off licenses and tags mm. and they would hire literally prostitutes to go and you know, hold the gun in a picture with the rhino and then they take the horns and sell them. And that gave this huge shot in the arm to the growth of that market. Uh, and, um, you know, and that's to say, I mean, I gotta be quick to add because I'm sure some of your listeners cross over with the hunting community. We also completely acknowledge that more money and support for conservation comes to Africa from hunting than, you know, any other single, uh, source or, or demographic. Um, but you know, it has to be acknowledged that that was part of the uh, the evolution of the current crisis, you know, was the accessibility of the horn in uh, corrupting a, a, a legal marketplace, if you will. Um, and of course, there's, there are now restrictions and it's now illegal to export horn in the way that you could before. But by that point, it's too late. You've already ignited, you know, this this wildfire, so to speak. So I, I'm not sure if that answers your question exactly. But uh, yeah.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the um, the sort of market that drives this and if we can about uh, who some of these groups are or or maybe just like generally speaking, um, so you mentioned that this is driven mostly by beliefs for you know medicinal uses and things like that from Southeast Asia. Is that mostly China and Taiwan or is that other places as well?
1: um yeah Vietnam Taiwan uh, Thailand China there there is a um,
0: there, there's kind of a
1: rise in uh, traditional Chinese medicine right like almost like uh, uh, and it's not just among you know poor rural you know folklore uh, susceptible communities as, as you might sort of you know imagine as a Westerner I just mean you, you as a collective you know whole that, that we might perceive it's actually the the Demand for TCM is among you know the more wealthy elites as well. It's become you know almost like uh, you know if you can imagine like the, the 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 demand for feng shui amongst Hollywood you know elites. There's there's some similar things happening there. So um, you're seeing it in multiple countries. Uh, again, I would refer to that document strewn up. Uh, it's on Amazon Prime because they go under cover into some of these countries and markets to identify it. But really what's driven it is the rise in cancer rates. There's been an explosion in cancer rates. Uh, there's a perception, uh, you know, that, that um, uh, rhino horn is uh, uh, a cure for um for cancer and that it is it has other values like a hangover cure you know just general wellness um ironically uh, most people believe that it, it's a virility aid right that's that's what you hear i the, the real story behind that is that it never was used uh really globally as as a virility uh aid until and i can't remember the article but until some idiot journalist a uh, couple decade or decade or two ago uh, wrote this article where he made up some facts about it being used for that reason based I think uh, on you know the, the phallic nature of the the rhino horn well it must be used in Asia for you know this and that uh, after that article was written and this shows you how dangerous bad journalism can be there started to it started to be offered for that you know by the the profiteers and you know the marketers selling it marketers primarily to Westerners. Because they thought, well, uh, Westerners must think we can use it for this. Let's start selling it for this. Uh, but that was traditionally never one of the reasons that rhino horn was sourced. And of course, I'm speaking specifically about rhino horn. But there's, you know, the, the demand like uh, um, uh, lion paws and lion heads. Like one of the things you'll see in these parks, and uh, it's it's pretty nasty business. But you know, a lot of guys don't want to go hunting a lion. So what they do is they'll poison a waterhole, or they'll like kill a zebra and inject it with poison, and then that zebra. Um, the lions will come feed on it and then the lions die and then they cut the heads and the paws off the lions. And I've got all kinds of pictures on my phones of this. It's really uh, horrific to see, um, especially when you have faced a lion, as I have on a couple of occasions, in a way that uh, you were just awestruck and terrified by how powerful they are. So to see one, you know, reduced to a, a just stumps and blood is is pretty it's just pretty nasty. But anyway, that is, is sometimes they're sold as tiger paws. Uh, some, you know, they'll be put and boiled and, uh, you know, used as, as remedies or coming of age things are, you know, it's, uh, so yeah, there's a demand for a lot. And then you see like, I, I don't know what you call it, but incidental poaching. So for example, now there is a lot of attempt to poison carcasses, um, specifically to kill vultures. Now mm-hmm. vultures play an in- a hugely important um, role in uh, you know in the ecosystem. You know they eat diseased carrion and dead meat, and they don't transmit that disease, right? So they they're a, they are clean up, play an important part. Uh, but one of the parts they also play is they alert counter poaching teams to when there is a downed carcass. And if you kill the vultures, it gives you more time to get away uh, and less uh, basically you're you're reducing, you know, it's like cutting the wires on an alarm, if you will. So, you know, they'll poison carcasses, but the crazy thing is that carcass, uh, depending on what kind of poison they use, it'll kill everything else. Hyenas, lions, jackals, uh, eagles that come to feed on it. And then in, in the cases of certain poisons, uh, it will soak into the ground, be absorbed in the roots of plants and anything, any undulates or whatever that eat those plants will also die for years. So what you have to do is you have to turn the soil over, burn it. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff you have to do when you encounter that. So, um, you know, that's so indiscriminate. It's so, I mean, what they do to go after a rhino is, you know, humane by comparison. I mean, they, you know, suppressor they'll, you know, shoot it, they'll, they'll cut its spine, uh, to, immobilize it if they think that's going to be quieter, easier than just killing it. And then they cut its face off, but it's targeting one animal. Uh, they try to be as quick as possible. And while we have seen them cut the horns off babies or cut off fetuses and things uh, just for the small amount of horn that is available there, uh, you know, you know, one doesn't sort of make the other at all good. But the point is you see something like those, those acts of poisoning and you feel like, well, damn. You know, it's, it's so indiscriminate. So anyway, I, that, that's a bit of a di- digression. Um, but yeah, the, the, that's, you know, what is driving the, the demand. And now that demand is spreading to, to parts of Asia. You know, there's other places that we, you know, have seen, seen that demand, um, you know, uh, appearing in or, or, or seen markets, uh, appearing with wildlife parts.
0: There seems to be something. Viewing, uh, a- you know, I don't know, somebody who has a lion's head in their living room or something like that. There is something like inherently wrong about this big, powerful, majestic creature that is essentially the king of the jungle, you know, just being placed somewhere as like a, a trophy, you know, by someone who who had no chance of killing it in a one on one battle or whatever. Aside from all the other wrongs about it, there, there's something that seems like really off about that to me. Um, and you know, and like unfair you, in a way, you know?
1: Oh, for, yeah. You know, I'll tell you a little story. Like, and then I'll, I'll, I want to say a little thing about that kind of big game hunting. But I'll tell you, I was, I had a guy who rescued some lions that I'm good friends with over there. Um, uh, uh, and, and I got up close and personal you know, with one of his lions there. And it, it, it Once you get within just a few feet, I mean, I I explained it to him. I said, this primordial thing happens deep and, you know, almost in the soul. And it's because everything in the lion is too big. Its eyes are just too big. Its paws are too big. You just know at this gut level that this thing is superior to me. Right. You know, there's nothing I can do. Um, That guy actually had a, a, uh, he'd been attacked and survived a lion attack. He had, had an incredible story about it. Uh, and I know I, I have a handful of friends over there who've survived lion lion attacks, uh, but there are equally as many stories of people who do not. You know, because you're you're highly likely you're not. But that lion is not predisposed to have an interest in hurting humans. You know, uh, the I think the majority of stories I've heard of, including one um, from a park vet that I know uh, who is covered in scars. Um, in his case, he accidentally on a safari walk got between a lion and her cubs. Uh, and the amazing thing was in his case, he had a rifle and the lioness was, you know, coming at him in a way that they they have certain behaviors and this behavior indicated that it was not a mock charge. She was going to, she was going to attack. And he told me that part of the reason he got so torn up so badly is he hesitated to shoot because he said, she's got cubs and what is she, you know, what have they done to deserve losing their mom? You know, he was in the wrong place. He had done the wrong thing, right? Um, you know, of course, it, I think in the last few seconds, he thought, well, I also have kids, <laughs> you know? Right, And, right, right. Uh, you know, he, he, but I mean, it just shows you how extraordinary some of these people are un- giving respect to their environment. You know, in terms of the the lion on the head, I mean, one of the complicated things, especially from the perspective of conservationists, is the role that big game hunting plays. Now, you know, Edge uh, doesn't take a, a stance on this, and I personally am not trying to advocate one way or another that, that it's something that someone should be a fan of or not. But, you know, speaking, uh, uh, just in terms of, of the, the white and the black of, you know, the, the finances of it. Um, a lot of places cannot survive without culling their animals or big right. game hunting. Uh, right now, Botswana, there are these carcasses of elephants. If you Google it, you see these pictures of just elephant carcasses. It's, it's kind of, crazy, just streaked with, you know, vulture shit. And, uh, uh, somebody was sending me these and I'm like, well, why are all the elephants dying? Um, and they, they didn't know, you know, they, it was, it was a mystery for a minute, but we got the information. The information is that since they've stopped culling during COVID-19, they're starving, starving to death. Right. And simultaneously, they don't have the money to pay a lot of their staff. Um, if you can imagine, so say that you have a a, I don't know, Four hundred hectare farm or something, and you've got a uh, pride of five lions. Those lions need to make about two hundred kills a year of wildebeest or bigger um, to feed that pride. Uh, to you need a herd of at least a thousand wildebeest to replenish itself uh, with that kind of you know attrition. Um, now imagine that those lions have cubs, and your the size of your property is such that you know, you can, you don't have room for more, uh, uh, you don't have room for more herd animals. Um, well now you're in trouble as a farmer. And a lot of times, like right now, there's nobody who will take a line. Like I know who, who could take it, who could afford to keep it, who could afford to feed it, who could integrate it into their environment, who could do the veterinary work to see, uh, if it's genetics will contribute to a large park or if it's a disease carrier or what, right? So you as a, farm owner, you know, can charge a rich dentist from the UK or the US or, or whatever to come in and do a legal, uh, coal hunt to kill an identified animal. Um, which one helps with your population, your ability to have those animals and two, uh, gives you the money that you need because the amount that a, a rich Westerner will pay to do something like that that could pay your security staff salaries for the whole year. So it's pretty simple math to the people on the ground. And when you come in and say, Hey, we'd love to help with your conservation, but you are no longer allowed to do this because you know uh, that when I hear groups talk like that, I know they have not spent time listening to people on the ground. I mean, it causes huge problems when giant groups come in and compel that kind of thing. And again, I'm, I'm not trying to say one's better, one's worse. I'm just trying to say that the reality of the role that this kind of hunting plays, um, is, you know, it has to be substituted with something if you want to say that they cannot do it anymore. And, uh, you know, it, but it also, uh, whether it's elephants or lions or whatever the, on the the side of the hunting outfit, professional hunters, the farmers, you have to be discriminate because a lot of hunters, what do they want? They want the biggest, best bull, right. Or, or the biggest, best, whatever, uh, so you're now removing from the genetics of that environment, the best expression of those genetics. So, you know, okay, well, what does that do to the long-term population of, of, of these animals? So, you know, it's nothing, nothing is black and white is the point. And when you talk about that, like I have the same reaction as you, you know, uh, and, and I have picked up photography while doing this and absolutely love it. I never thought I'd be into wildlife photography. Um, and I and I love all of that, but uh, this stuff, those trophies on the wall, they play a big role, and right. that has to be a part of the conversation.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting point to bring up stuff. Uh, um, but one thing people don't factor in at all is what you just mentioned. Whereas on these legal hunts and and uh, things of that nature, it funds the the conservation and the folks who are running the place and it allows them to continue and um, you know continue to function and and have these programs available so you know a a couple of years ago a few buddies of mine, ex-Navy SEALs they I forget exactly where it is they go but they go go somewhere I think it's in East Africa and they um, they go on these hunts and um, the they bring a lot of money in, and they they give the meat to local villages, and people eat, and and uh, you know people make money, and it's just an important uh, point and fact to bring up, and and I'm glad that you did so.
1: Yeah, and they employ a lot of people, right? You employ uh, you know kitchen staff and waiters when you're dining. You employ your guides and your drivers, and uh, you know the 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 people doing the taxidermy work. Like you you bring a lot of employment. Uh, you know, so it's to, to, if you live there, there's a, there's a net positive. Um, that's not to say that all outfits are ethical, uh, or, or thoughtful or good. And it's not to say there's no corruption, but it is to say that, you know, um, a, a board, one of our board members was the, uh, was the, the chair of the board for the uh, wildlife conservation network, as well as the Jane Goodall Institute. And he, uh, while not being somebody on that side of hunting, uh, Politics, from my experience with him, um, he he demanded of the Wildlife Conservation Board, if I remember the story correctly, or at least he 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 uh, strongly suggested in one that they include someone from the uh, Safari Club International. Uh, I can't remember if it was on their board, or on their board of advisors, because he said that we, you know, we cannot work separately. We have to work together, you know, And, and somebody else in some article likened it to you have to look at every one of these things as a brick in the wall. You know, uh, you remove one and the wall is weaker. And I think that there needs to be more consonants, you know, in that environment. And one of the unique things about Edge is we fit in anywhere. We literally have no competition. And it's not because there aren't other excellent, well-meaning people, but it's because we only go where we're needed. And we have something to offer anybody. That's the value of working with guys from the special missions unit community. You know, between the maturity, the expertise, we know that whatever their capabilities, we can either – deliver or source to be delivered, um, ways, methods, and development procedures for them to be better than they are, you know, and, uh, we're not a cookie cutter, one size fits all where you go and say, everybody must act like this. Here's our model. We're going to train everybody to this level, deploy them like this. No, it's, it's, we're very, um, you know, we're, we're, we're very consultation, (laughs) consult, consultation. We do things in a very consultation way. Um, we consult, uh, you know and and develop and and try to invest our co you know we look for co-investment I should say
0: so what are some popular um what are some popular misconceptions people have about conservation and counter poaching work
1: um well you know I'll, I'll highlight two i think i already mentioned one is that you know this work is as important to everybody on the ground as it is to us watching a Nat Geo documentary, you know, uh, from Pasadena, California, wherever you may be. Uh, to, to give you a quick example, I was in a, um, I was in a luxury safari lodge meeting with the head of security, uh, you know, uh, to, to have a conversation. He says, "Oh, you know, you at the time I was living in California," uh, and he says, "You know, meet them. They're in the lobby," and I went and shook their hands and they did and they said but the park has a fence around it why how do the poachers get in you know i thought you have no idea like it just i i I was almost like could have slapped me and i wouldn't have felt it at the moment because i i just realized they have no idea that there's guys literally right now risking their lives for them to enjoy their safari experience um so you know that's one misconception i think that people just don't understand that there literally is a war being fought and people are dying you know uh to, to protect animals. Uh, another one, I think there's a lot of misconceptions around the role that hunting plays. And I will be quick to add it's on both sides, right? It is not a 100% good, 100% bad thing at all. It, it is something that has to be managed like anything else in a nuanced and complex way. And to approach it simply from either side is a misconception uh, in my humble experience. Right. Um, you know, another, um, I think that there's a a perception that Africa is just wild and you just sort of waltz through it. Everything is like the Masai Mara or the Akabama Delta you have seen in, in, you know, documentaries. Um, But even those places and anywhere else, you know, places have fences, borders, boundaries, conflict. When you build, uh, as another member of our board, uh, Bob Cisneros has said to me several times, when you build a road, you divide a forest. So You know, elephants can no longer migrate in the way that they, you know, were evolved to be able to because there is no free land except in a few places that have enough space for them to have healthy genetics. But nowhere can they migrate in the way that you would have seen, you know, at the turn of, um, you know, the 18th to 19th century, for example. Um, So that's another common misconception. Um, You know, uh, I think – you know, this one's general and kind of may may sound like BS, but I think a lot of people think that solutions are a lot easier uh, than they are. You know, uh, two examples that come to mind very quickly. One is people say, well, can't you just move the rhinos to Texas or something, you know, to save them? Well, you know, I, I'll give an example. An elephant knocks down a tree uh, either to get the green leaves at the top or because he's a young bull trying to show off and he's full of testosterone and look what I can do to a tree. Um, that tree is then harvested by termites who take it down into massive termite mounds that can go 30 feet underground. They then harvest that wood for fungi. Those termite mounds can be eaten out in the night by, uh, uh, an anteater, an aardvark or a, a pangolin. Um, that then becomes a home to them. It also becomes a home to mambas and other things. Um, you know, that elephant walking through the bush clears it, uh, bee eater birds, um, fly in front of the elephants to eat insects. The Point is it is, it's such a complex environment. It's not just the world is not a zoo. You know, what we're losing is not just one species. It's, it's the, the wholeness of that environment. So I think a lot of times people, think that there are much easier solutions than there are. And that also comes to the tactical side. You know, people approach us all day long. Um, one of the misconceptions about us, we do not shoot, engage, or, you know, arm ourselves to face off against poachers. Um, nobody is cleared to do that in Africa from an NGO or other standpoint. Uh, that's also something that, uh, there, there's a role that we play in this fight and that is not it. At least not right now. Um, So I think that there's a a gung ho misconception. We, we, the top war fighters on the planet with edge play a support role. And I think that's really noble uh, in a way. Um, I I think that's, that's pretty awesome, you know? Um, And so, but from that perspective, a lot of people say, well, can't you just do this? Can't you just do that? Can't, you know, just fly drones. Uh, Well, we've tried that we've worked with people and we thankfully people have come before us who have given us, you know, things to be careful about that other groups have done wrong. Uh, that have burned bridges, uh, or, you know, wasted time and money or whatever it may be. So there's a lot we have to learn from But drones, you know, they, one place we, we did some testing with them, we spent some time talking to the guys and realized they are pretty effective as a deterrent, but not really for pursuit. You know, there's the cost to benefit ratio is way off. So yeah, anyway, those are some of the misconceptions that I can think of. Um, I'm sure, you know, there are many, many, many,
0: Okay, so there's two pieces here to what I'm going to say. So first, I would like to ask, what can my listeners do to help you guys, which in turn helps with conservation efforts? And then the second part of that is, um, in a situation where folks are interested in making donations to any organizations that are working in conservation or counter-poaching, what are some steps that they can take to ensure that they're contributing to something that is legitimate or an organization that follows the local laws, things like that.
1: Uh, ooh, that second question is a little complicated. Um, I I'll start with the first one. Um, you know, we, uh, we rely on donations, right? And as I said at the beginning, and one of the reasons I was excited to come on your podcast, cause I'm, I'm a listener. Uh, I know some of your other guests, I'm very close friends with some of the guests you've had on, uh, You know, we a lot of what we do is done by quiet professionals, uh, and it's done as I described in ways that is, is we're limited in our ability to advertise that. You know, we have a high cool factor, you know, but to really describe, you know, if we describe the capabilities that we've introduced to a unit, (laughs) you know, well, now the world knows what they are, and we've you know removed some of their advantage. Um, we're also guests everywhere we go, and we try not to look like we are the stars of the show. Um, those things said, uh, you know we re- we rely on donations and what I like about your listeners is your listeners know what it means to employ guys from special missions units to work with them and they know the caliber the maturity and everything that comes with that association so hopefully you know some of your listeners will step up and say I get it You don't have to say anymore. Like I I see your mission. I understand it. And I'm willing to support it because that's the, that's the wonderful but difficult hand that we've been dealt uh, in, in building edge is we have to find people who, who get it. And uh, you know, that we can grow with, and we can be very open and honest with, with donors and uh, close friends, you know, both in terms of what we put on social media, what we put online, we have to be careful about that. Um, You know, and, and also you, you never know, you might run, you might piss somebody off over there, based on saying the wrong thing based on local politics or bureaucracy you know it's just it's always good to try to you know be on that mature side but that means that it's twice as hard to fundraise well that's the hand that we're dealt and that's my job is to navigate that so you know that's one thing that i would ask of your listeners uh, if, if they are compelled and if this is something that that inspires them i mean you can find us online ecodefensegroup.org on all instagram twitter ecodefensegroup um, we're going to we're going to start a uh, we you know we sell some things we 're going to start a t shirt subscription at some point but I think the thing we need right now donations have dropped about seventy five percent during covid you know that 's just a harsh reality and there's no donor that we can be angry at you know because <laughs> we get it it's right. it's just the 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 state of the world you know if somebody can give us twenty five bucks a month it, that amount gives us security you know it, it starts to give us something we can budget on because uh I was on the phone at the embassy before I got on with you uh, we are um we, we, you know, basically are in a position that no other NGO has, uh, been in, in regards to their relationship. We have done implementing work. Uh, we just did some training for firefighters, uh, fast rope training, uh, in, in Cape town, table mountain national park. And we're going to continue that. And we're going to do other work and we're going to get over on essential work permits and begin our work. You know, the, the, the time for sitting around, we've sharpened, We've sharpened ourselves. We've prepared ourselves. We've gathered material. And now we got to go and we need some people behind us um, to answer your other question in terms of, you know, how to determine if, if you're giving to a good group with NGOs. That's always difficult. Right. I mean, it is very easy to start a GoFundMe to, to you know, shake the trees for dollars based on an emotional appeal. Um, you know, I. I cannot say you know what the red flags are. I personally, like I said, there's some groups that'll say something and it'll be a red flag to me based on my experience over there. Um, you know certain claims that people make uh, and, and a lot of that is objective. It's not purely subjective. Um, I don't know that I can make a negative case for anybody else or, or that I would want to, but I can make a positive case for us, which is to say, if anybody wants to give a meaningful amount to us uh, and, and they want to get involved, Um, some people we bring over, we can get the right top donors involved, but at the end of the day, if you want to call, get on the phone with me, my job is to make this work and anything that you feel needs to be explained to a point where you're comfortable, you know, giving and supporting our group. If it's not absolutely clear. Um, what I can say to your listeners that I can't say on Instagram effectively is we work with the special missions unit combat veteran community. We do not take guys on, um, you know, accept in a very special selective way with real world ongoing long experience, you know, and one of the assurances that that gives me as the president, president of the group is that we're always going to be on the right side of that maturity spectrum. We're never going to do something stupid, uh, you know, based on the, the people we're working with, you know, uh, uh, certainly not ever based on intention or design. And it means that, um, you know I can say with a high degree of confidence that we are both capable and that we're capable of, of of managing ourselves you know in this in this very unique place we have found. so I can make that case. I think that your listeners will understand uh, because you've had other people on from the same community who. Uh, or communities who, um, you know, they, they would have a high degree in confidence in protecting their own family. And what I, what I've said to people is, you know, we've entrusted them to protect, uh, protect democracy, uh, to protect our country. And now it's time to trust some of them to protect, uh, a, a global resource that we will lose for all of history. And, um, you know, that's, that's what edges mission is and as humble, but as, uh, determined, dedicated, and um, passionate a way as possible.
0: Yeah, I, I will say this for my listeners. Um, you know, there are, so social media is a double-edged sword because things can look very pretty on social media and that might not be the case in real life. Um, so just in general, uh, when you're talking about organizations that Work in the in the area of countering human trafficking. Uh, if you're talking about groups that are working counter poaching, um, there are organizations that have huge presence on social media and followings. But as far as you know, things that are happening on the back end, um, it's not so pretty. So, uh, what I will say for my listeners is. I was interested in talking to somebody about conservation and counter-poaching work, and what I did was asked on social media if anyone knows any organizations. I got some hits on that, on some feedback on that, and then I also spoke to some of my friends who retired out of the Special Missions community, and I was talking to one guy who I highly respect, and um, what he said was, you have to talk to the guys at Edge at Echo Defense Group. Um, they are top notch. You know, I, I give them a, my stamp of approval. And essentially, once I heard that, I'm like, okay, this is a serious guy with who's done some serious work. You know, over a 20 plus year career. And um, so, I, I would ask my my listeners to very much support you guys. You know, check you out on social media go to the website and um, just like you mentioned, if anyone has any questions uh, you know, you guys can take care of that. Uh, you know, hopefully th- this podcast will open some eyes for folks and, and answer some questions that they may have. Uh, and uh, you know, I'm really glad that we sat down to do this. Uh, you know, I appreciate you coming on here.
1: Yeah. I mean, one quick thing I'll say that you, you know, I guess I didn't bring up earlier um, I, I say often that we were founded out of need, not out of purpose. Nobody involved with EDGE woke up thinking, hey, in five years, I'm going to be spending a lot of time in Africa, or I really care about Rhino. How do I get involved? We were in a position where um, a, 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 a US government office was requested to support you know, th- this crisis. And I happened to be in the right place at the right time to t- take the helm of EDGE, Um, which was formed specifically to answer the call that no one else could answer. And what shocked me my first time spending time in the bush was that I thought, where is the world? Like we can, we can solve this. Like how is it that I'm in a position to give body armor and boots and other things that these guys need defending the last great population of Rhino? Like where's everybody else? And from that, we evolved to broker the extraordinary talent to bring really unique resources and training and all of this. So you know that that difference when you ask how to distinguish groups. The one thing I can say about us is none of this. None of us are in this for us. You know, uh, at best, uh, you know, or at most, I'm in this for my kids. But uh, you know, we 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 are here because we are needed. And the day that we are not needed over there, I'll go back on safari you know, <laughs> right. and like, you know, hopefully get to do some, some of the cool stuff that we get to do now, but um, you know, the day that we're not needed. And, and so that's the the appeal that I'll, I'll make. And uh, I am really humbled to be in this position, to be able to play a part uh, in the only war ever fought over wildlife. You know, it's pretty incredible. So yeah, man, I appreciate you, You're, what you've done to build this up and, and to, you know, from my perspective, very respectfully um, pay respects to, you know, uh, communities that have done really remarkable work in the world. Uh, Yeah, we're, we're honored to be considered a part of that conversation.